Hello and welcome to BAFTA Crew Online. My name is Ian Hayden-Smith and I am here today with Ivana Primova. Welcome. Hi. Uh, just to say in advance that any of my views or Ivana's views are our own and not of BAFTA's, just to get that out of the way. Um, Ivana has had a remarkable career and continues to have a remarkable career. She's been involved in a wide variety of films, from Billy Elliot to Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, The Reader, The Imitation Game, The Hours, Anna Karenina, and Atonement. Most recently, she's worked with Danny Boyle on Steve Jobs, and she is the recipient of six BAFTA nominations. Let's start. Never a win. <laughs> never say never. No, I'm, I'm extremely proud of my six nominations. Um, before we get to the nominations and, and your more recent work, let's actually talk about your background. And Certainly. What was it about hair and makeup? Why did you want to enter the industry? Uh, well, I really did uh, make a conscious decision to uh, enter the industry. Um, unlike many people who kind of somehow fall into it, um, I was a daughter of a very academic family, uh, born in uh, former Yugoslavia in Croatia. Um, and um, uh, my parents were judges and lawyers, and my sister was very academic, and I didn't, I wasn't very academic. And I thought, what can I do that I'll be really interested in? Because like my parents, I had very good example in them in loving what they do. And I thought, I, I have to choose something that I'm interested in, otherwise my working life is going to be rather dull. Um, and because they, they were huge lovers of arts, um, of every kind of theatre, of music and uh, cinema certainly, um, that was something that um, we frequented a lot. And I thought, I remember thinking, who does this job in turning Dustin Hoffman into all these different people? Papillon, Tootsie, you know, that was the time in the late 70s and the early 80s when Dustin Hoffman seems to be working a lot and, and transforming a lot. And I distinctly remember thinking, um, who does that? That's sort of a genius job because these people don't look anything like the original actor that we know. That's a really cool job. And I didn't know if I was going to be any, if I was going to be talented in it or not, but I thought I'd really like to try. And that um, interest turned into real passion and real love uh, through trying to find how to train and how to uh, get my education and become a makeup and hair designer. And so how did you train? So what happened is I uh, discovered that the best thing to do is to train with the former BBC. The reason being because, the, the, I said former BBC because the former training that BBC uh, provided doesn't exist anymore. But as part of the BBC, um, there was a huge training program for makeup and hair people, which consists in really, it, it was an apprenticeship. And I think that's something that I would like to um, say it's a very important part of any culture of any country apprenticeship programs are amazing because you literally do work you you train on the job uh, our job is very physical and it's very hands-on and you do have to learn it in practice in practical situation but you can't really be let loose um, very quickly in the makeup department because it is very technical very demanding and it is quite a difficult job um, so I found out that BBC offers this training and I set out to uh, try and apply for it, which involved three and a half months of interviews and practical tests, 3,000 people whittled down to six. And in this three months, um, I uh, got down to last seven. 
and then they wrote to me to say that actually I got in and then the next day they wrote to me to say well, we, it wasn't you, it was another girl that they wanted. <laughs> which was kind of a horrible situation but uh, at the same time I was so deeply in, in it and, and knowing that this was the right path for me because I could learn on the job, it was kind of, I didn't have to compete on an open market, it was all about learning the craft. Uh, that when they told me that I didn't get the job, I thought, well, I'll just do what they would offer to me. I'm going to go and start from scratch. So I joined a um, school that was set up by the BBC designers um, and completed that course and then wrote to many, many, many makeup and hair designers. Um, and Naomi Don and Jenny Sherko, who are two still to this day, I would say, the best designers in the film industry, took me on. And I worked with them for many, many, many years and uh, basically it took me 15 years till I designed my first film. And I think it takes that long. I always say to study law takes that long, to study medicine it takes that long, and certainly to become really, really brilliant in the film industry takes sort of equal amount of time. You know, to pass your bar takes 10 years and it takes that long to become very good in, in, in certain departments in the film industry. And how easy was the switch moving from working in television to film? In, not necessarily in terms of the application of, of trying to get the job, but just in terms of workload and the pressures. Um, interesting question. Well, at that time, then, interestingly, BBC actually dis dismantled the whole organisation, sort of uh, stopped, they stopped training people pretty much after um, I didn't join uh, the BBC properly. Um, so a lot of people made the switch from television into low-budget film, which I think with Film 4 and other um, amazing um, institutions started to kind of flourish. Um, so. A lot of people that I worked with, like Jenny Sherko and Naomi Don, who were both at the BBC, uh, they started working in, in the film industry. Um, and because they came from this incredibly um, um, fruitful you know, uh, BBC that made incredible period drama, comedy programs, you know, people who were designing and working at the BBC had to work on every kind of program. You just think of French and Saunders with all that foam, you know, prosthetic makeup. And Ruby too. Wax, you Ruby, with. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, all those incredible period dramas they did last of the Mohicans in Scotland, you know, where they had to turn Scottish people into um, uh, Native Americans and all sorts of incredible things that actually we don't do so much these days. So the switch, those were the kind of incredible people to work with uh, because they were so skilled. And then can you talk about your first few jobs in the industry and how you move from there to becoming a head of department? Um, so I, I very happily uh, designed Jenny Sherko for many, many years and she always chooses and still does to this day, I think, most interesting projects because she doesn't do anything that she's not interested in. And she's never repeated anything twice in her design. So that was a great uh, part, you know, team, uh, to, to be on her team was amazing. Um, the last film I ever did with her as her, design, as a, as her assistant was Elizabeth, first Elizabeth, um, which I th think to this day is probably one of the most perfect films for makeup and hair, certainly and costume, ever made um, for many different reasons. And one of them is that you know, costume designer and Jenny Sherko, they both worked and prepped that movie together for about three months. They had quite a long prep. Everything was chosen, perfectly chosen, perfectly fitted and then made and then applied. And then after that, um, uh, I think life throws you sort of into a different direction just because you've been in the industry for a long time. And there was an opportunity 
uh, for a very low budget film, which was The War Zone. And the producers who have known me as Jenny's assistant for very many years thought, you know, they, it was such a low budget film. Jenny wasn't interested in it because it was too small for her. And they thought, oh my God, but Ivana would be perfect to kind of step up into that role. And I was, I have to say, I remember asking my father for advice, what should I do? Because I wasn't, I was very scared. I was very comfortable being Jenny's assistant for the rest of my life, I would have done that job. And then I thought, well, you have to, progress is a progress. You have to throw yourself into um, this situation. And because the film was so small, there were two adults and two children in it, I thought, perfect place to start. I can handle this. If, if someone offered me Lord of the Rings at that time, I would have had to say no, because I wasn't capable of doing that. So I had to say yes, and that was the first of um, many films. And I really enjoyed the role. I enjoyed being the head of department, and I enjoyed practicing everything I've seen that Jenny was doing for all those years. And, uh, um, and, and putting that into practice, and I've never looked back, really. It's fascinating looking at your incredible body of work, <laughs> that you do work on the big-budget films. You, you were, as you said, Lord of the Rings. Um, but that film's interesting because it was the first feature by Tim Ross as director. And you do seem to sort of go from the very big projects to small personal projects by visionary directors. Yes. Um, do, you, do you get this energy? from people like Danny Boyle, like Tim Roth, who are open to ideas, rather than perhaps directors who are constantly working on larger films who don't have the time to think about all the details necessarily? Absolutely. I mean, I have to add that I didn't design Lord of the Rings. Uh, but um, I work a lot with the designer who designed Lord of the Rings, and uh, we work collaborated on many projects together. Um, but yes, I find uh, projects that I work on are scripts that I love and I'm, and I'm interested in. Um, I actually find, you know, working on a large budget movie, for me, was a challenge to kind of learn how to navigate that in itself and how to run a department under those kind of circumstances. That was more of a challenge than, in a, than, a, than a creative challenge. Um, I do love small, I do find uh, a, a good director is a driving force for me, uh, for any project. Um, I'm more of a director's uh, person than the actors, you know, work more, I collaborate with directors more than I get attached to certain actors. Um, and I do repeat, I always work with the same directors more than once, because I, if, you know, if I, if I work with them well, then I love to work with them again and again and again. Um, on the subject of actors, having talked to a number of hair and makeup artists, one of the sort of unsung elements of, of their work is not what we see on the screen, but the fact that you often have to deal with actors who are preparing themselves emotionally first thing in the morning before anyone else does. And Lois Burwell and Christine Blundell previously have talked about being therapists <laughs> yes. for actors. Could you talk about that role and, and how easy it was to sort of transition into that part of your career? Yeah, certainly. Um, um, I, I'm very lucky to, be, to work with people who are proper, amazing actors. And I think being an actor is such a wide term. You know, there are people who are kind of um, 
maybe more performers, like in theatre, you know, to be an actor in a Shakespearean play is very different than to do a musical. There are many different types of actors. And actors that I work with are character actors, people who transform themselves for, for the particular role that they play and are willing to go to any lengths to achieve that transformation in makeup, but also with their voice, with their costume, with the, also, every tool that they, that's available to them they will use to try and portray that role, which means that they're, they're consumed by their uh, process. Um, and I have a lot of respect for um, fellow actors that I work with every day. Uh, their job is more, harder. Every more I work in this industry, more I'm in awe of them, because there's never enough time. Uh, there's always a lighting setup to wait for. Uh, then the light is going in, and they have to do something very quickly. Um, there's there are always limitations. And limitations are put upon by us or the other crew members with our jobs that we have to complete. A friend of mine is doing a shooting a movie, her first ever movie at the moment in uh, uh, New York, and she wrote to me today. She said, "What I would give for a great dolly grip." You know, she's not wishing for a better cast. She's wishing for a because sometimes a dolly grip can actually ruin a brilliant take that an actor can't repeat necessarily. So we're all equally as important, but they, they do have to go to a very emotional place and a place that sometimes can't actually be reached again. And this is where we have to, we are there to enable them to get there and to support that. Focus puller, if, 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 if the shot is not sharp and then they can't get to that place again, it's a disaster. So I find that collaboration of incredible talent that supports the actors all together quite a staggering, every day I, I'm, I'm sort of amazed at how we all kind of bounce together into this and make this whole thing happen. So in that way, I find actors, um, supporting the actors and whatever they need, I, I like doing that because it varies. In the morning, sometimes you have to be quiet, sometimes you have to be sensitive to their line reading, sometimes you have to read with them, <laughs> sometimes, you know, it, it depends what it is, but it's always about work. Sometimes we have fun and listen to music and talk about the, you know, what's happening in politics and in newspapers. But it's usually, in the projects that I work on, it's usually all about work because it's so over-consuming. I mean, certainly Steve Jobs, uh, the last film I worked on, is definitely one of the um, hardest in that respect because the actors had to learn more than... We were shooting 11, 12 pages a day. On average, you shoot two pages a day. Um, and it was all in continuous takes. So the actor said to learn 177 pages of dialogue um, and perform it in 12 minute takes, um, you know, word perfect. Otherwise the other person would kind of not be able to respond to them. It was totally like a play. And many times, you know, over and over, 25 times a day. Let's, let's look at Steve Jobs as sort of a case study. Um, Jan Sill was speaking recently about working on Everest. Yes. And saying that you know, the moment they started shooting in the Dolomites. Yes. Um, she didn't really see them for the rest of the day. She yes. might have a couple of minutes touch up, yeah. but, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. You just mentioned 12 minute takes. Mm. Do you have a first aid kit that is your essential equipment that you absolutely cannot leave home without to take onto a set to work with the actors? And in the case of Steve Jobs, how did you get around the sort of problems with time being in a warm room where people are sweating or whatever. Mm. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Everest because I thought, I literally thought you'd have to learn how to do that film. You'd have to learn how to uh, send someone up the mountain and not see them all day and then they come back and they're not, you know, ruined and beards are not hanging off. I had to learn uh, how to uh, let them go for 12 minutes 
um, and then find them in some sort of a decent shape at the end. And you literally, I think what you do on every job is you learn, you find out on your own mistakes and with a bit of experience that you had from before what works but doesn't work and you literally have to learn, you have to invent uh, procedures and techniques how to achieve that exact whatever is needed. Um, but I do think I have a, a, a first aid kit, as it were. And funny enough, I think it's things that I learned how to use uh, with Jenny, uh, probably some oldest uh, um, and palettes and ordinary glue and um, sort of very old-fashioned materials sometimes work the best. Um, because I think those kind of television days of comedy programs and those dramas where people were doing long takes, as it were, or you'd send people like it to perform in front of the live audience, you wouldn't be able to go in and touch them up either. So I find that some, sometimes the simplicity and the oldest techniques work best. And when you're approaching a project, do you find that on average your process to filming on a day is roughly the same or is it every day a brand new thing? Every day is a brand new thing, I have to say. It is, every day is a brand new thing. Um, certainly, um, certainly, certain projects kind of uh, get into their rhythm and you do repeat certain things again and again. But Pan, for example, was a, a nightmare because I, I didn't have an experience of, I mean, I loved it. It's one of the most fantastic experiences, but I didn't know how to do a kid's movie and I didn't know how to do a pirate movie where I didn't, we had to invent all new pirates that were not 17th and 18th century and that's only pirates that I know. Um, and I didn't know how to do native people who didn't, you know, th there was no brief of what they had to be. And I usually do films where characters are, uh, come from the real world and I can research and I can find out about them so, and I find that quite difficult uh, but then again I had to find the way to kind of make it more approachable for myself and research in a way um, somewhere in the real world and bring it into the imagination um, and so every day is always different and the problems are always different. And again, I assume this is where working with a director more than once helps because yes. you guys have worked together previously yes. on Hannah Karenina yeah. and Hannah. Yeah, and Atonement, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it was incredible. I and mean, it was incredible in that because Joe Wright is so visual and he wants everything to be incredibly uh, visual. But, you know, it was difficult for all of us because we didn't necessarily have a template of how to do that kind of movie. Um, but I enjoyed it and I somehow managed to um, learn something new. And you mentioned research. Could you talk a little bit about your research process and the time you have generally to research, whether it's enough or how you get around it if it's not? Well, I love research period. I think that's my favorite part of, the, uh, um, part of uh, my work. Um, on average, you get a little, you get probably like a month to research and prep a period film on average. Um, Pan, we had a bit more, but on average, you would, you, you, that's a sort of a, an average time to prep a movie. Um, I would always start a month before and, and spend a month of my own time because month is not quite enough. And also just technically, because it takes a certain amount of time to make wigs and facial hair and prosthetics and all those things, I always try and start two months before and give myself that time and then have non-consecutive prep, as we call it, so I can give myself a bit more time and, 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 um, uh, because you do, I need it. Uh, I, res I still research from books and I, buy, I have a massive library at home uh, that's uh, basically four walls covered in books because I do love books. 
But internet, of course, it's an amazing, an amazing tool. Um, you do, I do find the internet is, it's, it's hard. I'm still learning how to research on the internet because you always go to places where everyone goes to. So, you know, I just, I, I find it extraordinarily amazing to be able to learn a new search tool that where you can find, learn how to navigate internet to get deeper and deeper in certain areas. Um, but it's always, I always find, try and find an expert or someone to talk to, um, go through all the books and um, try and find, go from the most obvious to the most obscure and then find, find things that were actually and collaborate with the director and the actor because you can always find something that everyone agrees on. It's just you have to, I think, have a lot of material and a lot of knowledge about um, the subject matter. And I do, I, you know, I wasn't very academic as a child, but I do find this process fulfills my need for, that's my, that's my kind of university, as it were. You know, I delve into all the subject matters and historical moments and all the things that I make movies about. I delve, I always try and research it as much as I can and learn as much as I can about it. It's not a university degree, it's always not as deep as any university degree, but we get quite deep into certain subjects and I'm always interested in that. It's interesting talking to production designers hair and makeup artists, even cinematographers, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that all of them have come back to saying, I use books. Yeah. And one, one person, Alan Starsky, said it's the tactile element. Yeah. It's what seeing something on a screen is not the same as, as actually seeing it on the page. No, yeah, it's true. And, and I think, you know, I, th I still think if you go to the British Library, if you go to um, if you go to the National Gallery Bookshop, it's, it's got most amazing publications that I'm sure you can find anything online. But you don't really, I mean, I find screens difficult to read and scroll through. You know, you can re I can read, book I can really get deep into somehow. And I think the, the, the quality of, of the prints in some books, especially reproductions of certain artworks is incredible and I think that's where you can see the more of a three-dimensional effect and how things are painted and yeah books are still very much part of our um, part of our tool research tool and at what point in time does research sort of move into creation I'm quite fascinated about do you do you generally have a moment where you know when to stop researching, when to start creating. On something, say, um, Joe Wright's Anna Karenina, for yeah. instance, which was fascinating because it was a period film, mm. but it was a period film that actually took place within the theatre and yeah. was within itself fabricated. Yeah. Well, you do, I think, after about a month of extensive research um, and, 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 and uh, knowing who the cast is, because usually about a month before you start shooting, then you start getting... Uh, cast names through and then you start thinking okay this is this this would fit this person or um, finding out a bit more from the director what he wants to say about that person because I think part of my job what's brilliant about my job is that you're giving the audience information about in history um, about the person that that, that that actor is portraying so you can use that to hide things or to enhance things. You can make someone look completely benign, but they're actually a serial killer. You can make somebody look quite evil and, and, and um, uh, strong, and they're actually the nicest person in the whole thing. So uh, my job is to actually enhance the narrative. And I think this is about a, a month of learning about the subject matter and, and, and the period. You can really start making things fit the person and the character. And over the years, have you sort of built up a sort of 
stock of um, not just equipment, but sort of ideas you put away and said, okay, 16th century is over there, 17th here. <laughs> yeah, but my, my library is in, in sections. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but I've never, interestingly, I've never repeated, I always buy new, because every film is, I suppose only the, the, only the imitation game, for example, I didn't really buy anything new because I've had so much of, of 1940s yeah. research that that was kind of, the, so in a way, the simplest film uh, research-wise. I had to just get into the right, r real people like Alan Turing and, you know, that, that was more of a research um, on that. But every film um, I've done, I had to kind of get into the, that sideline of that period because if it's, if it's about posh people is one situation. If it's about working class people, you, then you have another problem. If it's about, depending on who, what, what you're dealing with, you have to kind of get into that um, uh, particular subject matter, I suppose. <laughs> Any questions? There will be. <laughs> there will be. <laughs> um, I want to talk, um, before moving on to collaborating with the wider film team, um, working with the actors and the director and, and the team on real characters. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned Steve Jobs already. Um, you also worked on Grace of Monaco. Yes. Um, and I think they're two interesting characters to look, at, yeah. to look at together because they're not just real people. They're icons that everyone has a very, very fixed idea of what they look like in their own mind and probably to each person it's very different. Mm. How tough was it sort of dealing with two actors who weren't necessarily going to look exactly like the person but you had to get that sort of essence? It's mm. a very good question and also a very brilliant example of, of, of how difficult that is. On Grace of Monaco we, everyone knows, I think Grace Kelly is probably the most photographed woman of her era. Um, and Nicole Kidman, who played her, uh, doesn't look anything like her, but embodies a lot of her qualities. Um, and on movies like, like that, of both Steve Jobs and Grace of Monaco, when you're dealing with very good actors, it's, it's a lot easier to help them transform. And my approach to Grace of Monaco was to try and uh, portray the essence of Grace, of, uh, of, uh, Grace Kelly um, and, and, and somehow portray the qualities, the elegance. If you, if when we tried, when we did all the film tests and we tried to copy the photographs and the exact makeup and the exact hair, it didn't look good on Nicole. So what we had to do is, is transform that practically into a version of that would then look good on her and therefore for the viewer to think she looks exactly like Grace Kelly, which she never really did. So it was the elegance and the kind of simplicity of it all, but we went the full circle. We, we tried to copy exactly what she had, um, some of her hats, you know, the hat maker that made for Grace Kelly made hats for her. Some of them didn't look good on Nicole. So you have to adjust everything. And that process in itself is very interesting because you do have to go through a long process of finding what suits and how to get there. Uh, proportions, like the length of eyebrows, um, you know, the, the, the size of the forehead, those kind of things are very important. You know, how the jaw, because Grace Kelly had this kind of incredible uh, symmetry to her face, but she also never, she was never shot straight on because she didn't look good straight on because she, she had very, very strong jaw. So she was always three quarters. So we had to adjust the way we shoot Nicole and how we see her, that she looks always, so we dropped a hairline, we did all the proportions. Um, so that would resemble Grace Kelly, what people know of Grace Kelly. Um, and then uh, you talked about Steve Jobs, which is another one of my favorite transformations I ever had to deal with. Um, 
when I spoke to, when I interviewed for the movie and, and met Danny Boyle, the first thing I said to him is that I don't think that uh, doing a carbon copy of these people who are in this film, who we all know who they are, from Steve Jobs to Wozniak to Joanna Hoffman, who people knew less, but still nonetheless people know what she looked like. Um, I didn't think it would, it would be good to kind of try and make Michael Fassbender look like Steve Jobs. He doesn't look anything like him. And the film- He's got a good jaw though. He's got a great yeah. jaw. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, I wanted to do something that would show the passage of time and that would look good on Michael. And then, then, then we will come to the end and portray someone who would have the essence of Steve Jobs and what he's been through. Because Steve Jobs famously started off as a bit of a hippie at university and then ended up wearing only black polo necks and jeans and um, only driving in certain cars. And you know he developed this style uh, as he developed his uh, uh, computers. Mm. Um, so that was more important to me than to achieve the exact carbon copy and the likeness. Um, it was more important for people to, for me, to, for people to watch the film and not notice what I do and what I did. And that's always most important to me that I, what I do is invisible. And if people never mention my work in any of the reviews, I really think that's the best compliment uh, because they are not distracted by it. And that means that they just watch the film and they could enjoy what the actors delivered. So we, Danny agreed, and we didn't do we didn't do any of the kind of carbon copy of the real people. But what I did do is I looked at all the real people, and then I did um, like with Steve Wozniak, for example. I did on Seth Rogen. I did what I thought Seth Rogen would have looked like when he was younger and older if he was that kind of person. So if he was wearing corduroys and stripy jumpers and was you know and it was a bit of a geek, what would Seth look like as a geek? So I changed him in that way rather than copying what Steve Wozniak looked like. And actually, there is a likeness there yeah. because they both had big beards and bushy hair. Um, uh, Joanna Hoffman was a very stylish Polish-American woman. And if you take that into account, then when you, you arrive at the very similar point uh, by having that approach. But that was my approach rather than trying to kind of go, oh, look, she had the fringe. You better have a fringe. It was kind of from trying to capture what those people were and, and what they represented. So with this idea in mind, uh, your thoughts on how you think people should look, in tandem with the research, when you receive a script, do you do extensive, or write extensive notes about how you think people would look before going into meetings with the director and the crew? Yes, I do, yeah. And I always back it up by visual reference as well. Um, uh, but yes, uh, extensive, extensive. My first meetings with directors is always a lot of, uh, a lot of boards, a lot of photographs, um, and very detailed description. Sometimes you get it very wrong, and sometimes you get it exactly right. But it's interesting how sometimes, um, sometimes you get the what the character should be like, or what the director wants the audience to perceive of the character completely wrong wrongly and that's always interesting because that's that suddenly go oh my god of course they shouldn't be like that they should be like this and now I'm trying to think of an example um, of that um, I can't think of anything but Joe Wright is usually the one that that happens with when you go oh you know this should be like this you go no no, no but that's the obvious way what you should do what we should do is do something completely the opposite like with Hannah you know that she she became uh, Saoirse Ronan in that film became this ethereal blonde, mm. you know, and I actually thought she should be dark, strong, you know, and completely like a warrior. 
And he was like, no, she should be some, you know, there she is in the middle of um, African desert, all blonde and bleached and, you know, no eyebrows, you know, who would have thought? But that's usually Joe, who's so visual, usually comes to those kind of um, uh, ideas that he wants to kind of trick the, visually trick the audience. Joe's a fascinating character as well in, in terms of the films he chooses to work on. And as you've worked on four with him, I'm, how tough is it to actually try and figure out a budget? Oh. Because you mentioned with Pan that you're, you're talking about creating a world that isn't rooted in a kind of a historical reality. It's the, it is a fantasy world. Um, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. I'm actually quite good at working out the budget till I got to Pan. Um, <laughs> okay, and, we won't talk about Pan. Well, it, it's interesting. It's, an, it's a perfect example, actually, because um, I'm good at working out the budgets because I can tell what the needs will be, needs of transformation. So you guess, and, you, and usually my guesses are um, usually right. Things that you make might be different, or you have to remake certain things and retry, but you can put all of that into your budget. Pan is a great example because no one knew what really we were doing. And Joe, when we were, when we had to, so, so all the pirates were made individually. So Joe was there and every single pirate was different. Every single one of them is different. And they couldn't be from the 17th century. But we then learned how to do them. So we did them from all sorts of, from the 40s, from the 30s, from the Depression era. We did them slightly modern and we did them from Elizabethan era. So we all learned costume and, and, and hair and makeup. We learned how to make a pirate. But when we came to the tribe, uh, I thought, well, what makes a tribe is that people look the same and that, so that you know that the, all these people in denim are one tribe and all these people in black lace are one tribe. No, Joe, well, and so you do a budget like that and Joe was like, mm, no, that's too obvious. That's really boring. That's been done. And you go, really, has it been done? I don't think I've seen. So what he then chose was a secret and that was totally him, secret art of Katakali, which is usually a one person that makes themselves up and performs in southern Indian villages, a southern Indian um, um, uh, art form. And it usually takes five hours for one person to get made up in this, in this way. And it's incredibly skilled. People learned how to do this uh, their lifetime. So I found the Katakali expert who came in and taught us how to do this, and it was five hours. And we had 300 people every day for about three months in this look. And so it was like, oh my God, I'm completely way out with my budget on this <laughs> and how are we gonna do it? So then we morphed this technique in with some Chinese opera and um, uh, a, a, a Japanese kind of uh, kabuki uh, style makeup uh, and morphed into our own language and we literally had three weeks of where I had to teach people. We all had uh, a workshop, but we had to learn how to do this makeup. And then 75 people every day had to do this every day and take an hour each to do this makeup. Because Joe, that's what Joe wanted. Something complete has never been seen before. It might be good to talk about your crew at this point in time, <laughs> all the people that you actually have in your team. Yeah. Um, in this case, the 400 yeah. who worked on Pan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Generally, what's the size of a team that you you um, like to work with? Well, it's interesting because I would say on, the, on an average period film, uh, like Imitation Game or like Atonement, um, uh, those kind of films, as I said, you have four weeks prep and you would have uh, a designer and you would have between three to four assistants. Um, on something like Pan, I had eight immediate assistants every day. 
Then I had um, a special, I had three maker buses, which was six position each. And they were just for the main team. Then I had a special person dealing with only stunts. Uh, and she had four people working with her every day. And then I had a genius pe person called Christine Whitney who was running the crowd and she had between 25 and 75 people every day for six months. And I would say that's the largest team I've ever, ever had. Cold Mountain was pretty big, that was pretty massive but not as big as Pan. So on average you would have, at the moment I have a makeup bus of six positions, I have six makeup and hair people with me every day, um, which is sort of a little bit bigger than your atonement or imitation game. But that's an average, is you have between four to six assistants. And what's your, what's your favorite? Do you enjoy working on contemporary period? Is there a specific period that you, you get a script coming through the post and you think, yes? <laughs> yeah, well, Steve Jobs. Um, <laughs> I enjoy working with amazing directors. Um, I, I do a lot of period. I think I do more period than, than, than contemporary. Contemporary that I do, I work with crazy, imaginative, wonderful people like Joe Wright or Stephen Daldry, who then think of all sorts of weird things to do, so it becomes like a period film. So I never worked on, I've never worked on a film where I didn't transform people. I've never actually worked on a film that people just come in and, and, and spend 10 minutes in makeup and then walk out as they are. I think this uh, television series that I'm doing at the moment called The Crown is most like that. Out of 210 casts that we have, I think about 50 of them really transform. 150 of them are pretty much cast to be what they are. Um, usually on Anna Karenina we had 81 speaking parts, uh, main cast, and every single one of them had a wig on. I think there was one person who didn't. Um, same is really on the hours, everyone pretty much transformed. It was very few people that sort of just came in, I don't think there was anyone, they just came in, came in and became, you know, themselves. Everyone goes through some sort of a transformation. So uh, that's my favorite, is, is the transformations and the task to make people be someone else. And even in the case of something like one day, you're actually looking at a period of time of switching. And with that in mind and thinking about the war zone you mentioned and, and the Martins, um, yeah. I've, I've heard some makeup artists say that actually capturing reality, the reality of today, or five, ten years ago, is actually more difficult in a way than period because people know yes. what they want to see on the screen that is their reality. And again, realities are very different to each person. It is. I think modern day can be uh, much more difficult because because you have to uh, uh, show. Basically, it's about characterization. You have to tell people. You have to help the narratives, uh, narrative, as, as I said before. Um, so you have to somehow tell people what these people are about. And modern day can be anything. And what what is it? Where is your anchor? What do you latch on to? How do you do that uh, in a modern day movie? It is very hard. Let's. Any questions at this point? <laughs> um, okay, there will be, I promise. Uh, let's, let's talk about the wider um, film crew that you work with. Obviously, the, one of the closest is costume design. Um, again, within your prep work for film, how early do you tend to start working with the costume designer? Um, I always, because costume designers will always start before hair and makeup. Um, 
I try and uh, because they just simply have a lot more to put to, to get together and it takes longer to make costumes for every single person than it does to uh, uh, make wigs for example so it's a practical situation yeah. there uh, but because they start earlier I always try and meet them as soon as I I'm on board or before I'm on board before I start my research and I like to work in the way that I become a member of the costume department um, and I always say that to the costume designers I work with because they, they, they sort the body up up to here and then I take over from here. And I always think it's one person and it has to be one person. And quite often when things don't really work out, um, I think there was one movie that I saw that I it was one of the Supermans or one of those kind of superhero movies where apparently they CGI'd all the costumes afterwards. And I think you could really tell that the faces and the hair, and they didn't know what the CGI costumes are going to be like. And, and that's a perfect example of sometimes that doesn't sort of, but it's a superhero movie, so who cares? But, you know, really, it is very important that it's a one person altogether. So yeah. the costume designer and the makeup designer are, uh, should be one. And, I, and because the costume designer does their research, they do their research very earlier on, I just like to join in with my ideas and... and, and embellish theirs and try and kind of get to where they're going and maybe just kind of enhance their ideas rather than going against. And I always worked, I'm so lucky that I worked with such genius costume designers that I'm able to do that with them and, and become a member of their department. Like I always try and fit with them. So when they fit in the costume, I'm always in the room and then add to it in the situation rather than take people away and do it without them because it always works better and then the actors can bounce their ideas when they see everything put together. So with Jacqueline Duran and with Anne Roth and um, Sandy Powell, all those people I always fit in their costume fitting room because it's more fun and it's more practical. A really good example for me of, of your work in the symbiosis between uh, hair and makeup and costume design, and you've mentioned already Anthony Minghella's uh, Cold Mountain, because what I found fascinating about that film is that it wasn't the big TV North and South drama where everyone's in perfect blue uniforms or perfect grey. Mm. It's very muddy, it's very mm. dark, mm. but you do have, particularly Nicole Kidman's character, yeah. having to stand out, but not stand out yeah. too much. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about the, the prep work that was done on that and the mm. collaboration with mm. costumes? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I did, I met Anne Roth on The Hours um, and, um, and she introduced me to Anthony Mangella and then I did, after Cold Mountain, I did absolutely everything with Anthony um, until he sadly passed away and I do still miss him to this day because I think he's one of the best filmmakers I've ever had the chance to work with. Um, so it was, it was the costume designer who actually introduced me to Anthony and, and got me to work on that film. And we would truly do everything together and, uh, and fit together and find the characters together. And, um, and it's a great way of working. Um, now, that's a brilliant example of, of how a collaboration um, and also how you invent how to do these things. Like all those uniforms, uniforms don't exist and they had to be made. So they literally had to set up factories to make all those uniforms. We had more than 1,000 Romanian army uh, playing all those soldiers and they had to be uh, Confederate and um, whatever the other soldiers were and it, it was it, it was a huge undertaking so all of that had to be and then I had to turn them into American boys rather than Romanian boys so suddenly it had to be lots of blonde hair rather than just dark hair and 
um, and all of that. And so we did literally all of that together. But the, the, all of that, everything that you see on that film was created by the filmmakers together because it didn't exist. It doesn't really exist. And sort of making up the design triangle, you've got the production designer. And I was looking, again, looking through your body of work. It struck me one of the extreme examples would be Sweeney Todd because mm. it's, it's not just Victorian England, it's Tim Burton's gothic mm. Victorian mm. England mm. where people have very pale faces. Mm. Um, with, with directors like Tim Burton, uh, it's, it's not easy to work with those kind of people, but it's easy in a sense because they have very clear ideas of, of what they would like. And again, traditionally what happens, the production designer will start before the costume designer. Uh, so by the time I joined the costume designer, they would have already had that conversations about the colours of the fabric and the drapes and the walls and the furniture, because that's vital. And sometimes when things change, sometimes you find terrible clashes and problems between those two. You know, you, you have to synchronise all of that. And certainly then hair comes into it last, uh, but not the least. You know, you have to synchronise all the three elements. Um, so it's fun to join in on those, you know, when, when I join, uh, a lot of things have already been, been decided on or have, are being decided on, and you just join in with your ideas. Uh, and production designers usually have the biggest team because they have to, I don't even know how they do what they do. I mean, it's extraordinary. It always makes me um, totally in awe of them because on those kind of movies, everything's made. Everything is made and everything is researched and sourced. And usually there's some really genius, I mean, it's great to go and look at their library of books and you find something because it's about the furniture rather than the faces, but you find a face attached to the furniture that you haven't found from your books. So I always go and raid their libraries to see where they've been and how they researched and where they, because quite often Tim Burton's reference would be 1950s talk show host rather than where I was going with my research. And you go, how did they get that? Oh my God, genius, look at that. So that's how you then get your ideas and get somewhere together. You also worked with Tim on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Um, perhaps this is a good time to, with reference to that and the other films that you've worked on that use it to talk about the change that visual effects has, has brought in for your work and the good and the bad and, and how to cope with that. Um, well, visual effects is, um, I, I think, is something that I would like to uh, collaborate with more and more, actually. I think that's the future of uh, what's capable, what's, what's possible in this industry. Um, the best example of, of that for me would be The Reader, where we had a very difficult task in ageing and changing Kate Winslet totally uh, into an unrecognisable woman who was actually 15 years younger than Rafe and he, in a story she had to be 15 years older than Rafe. So, Rafe Fiennes. So, we had to kind of go way past what the comfort zone of the you know, ageing process is. And I, very early on with all my ideas, I approached the visual effects department and said, look, can you do this bit? You can go deeper in than I can, so, you know, with, so if we agree that you will do certain things after I've done my practical bit, that you will do this in the post. So we now, then all the tests were done with that in mind. Um, and that's, you know, almost kind of a Benjamin Button kind of idea of, of collaboration. And I think that's the real way forward because the pure CGI, makes things very cold, I think, and you can tell. And practical makeup and hair is always better, but not possible to go as far as with the collaboration. 
And I was talking to a director of photography recently about their process of DI, of digital enhancement or whatever it's, it's called, that didn't exist 10, 15, 20 years ago. So now when the film is finished, they go in and they go into DI process and, and tweak and, and color temperature and everything they did do afterwards. That's the same sort of thing for us. If I can go afterwards and work with the visual effects department on certain things, which not to fix things, but to enhance them. Um, would be, I think, genius way forward um, in, in our visual kind of uh, creative departments, costume and um, certainly makeup and hair. On a film like Pan, which I'm assuming had previous involved, were you, yes. did you get involved in that? Were you sort of allowed to see what was going on? Yes, there? you do see what's going on. And, and because we, well, we work very closely with, with Joe, but they previous, so, so there was no collaboration when they were pre-visiting things, but Joe would then say, can you go and talk to uh, people who are making the, uh, uh, the head on the ship and show them what we've done with uh, Blackbeard so that they can do their version of. So he was very, very aware that we should all be talking to each other. Quite often you don't. And I think that is because you don't have the experience in that. And that's where the real future lies in, in more and more collaboration. Uh, but it's genius. I mean, previs is incredible uh, it, because you literally do see how it's all going to end up, and it's invaluable. It's totally invaluable. It's amazing. We've got about seven or eight minutes. Any questions from any? Yes, we have. Um, I was just wondering, um, depending on how films being filmed, do you have to change your style of makeup if it's in three D or black and white or anything like that? Do you have to alter the makeup slightly? Or is it? Looking, looking at various technologies, 3D, black and white, different styles, do you have to adapt in order to sort of fit in with that? Yeah, you do. You do have to adapt. And, and the way things are shot and the way things are going to be bleached, bypassed, or whatever techniques that uh, a DP might want to use, you do have to adjust. Certain colours of blood are very completely, on Sweeney Todd, we have to use very bright orange colours to make them look red. Um, so all that had to be tested and then you're told to use something and every day you go, is this going to look right? This looks terrible. And then of course it does look right because you tested it. But it does totally depend on what you're doing. You have to adjust things. But then you're always given time to do that when um, uh, filmmakers want to use a certain technique. Sometimes when they don't know they want to use a certain technique and they make films 3D sometimes afterwards or famously when they flip shots, like in Lord of the Rings they flipped a lot of the shots because the hobbits were traveling left to right always. And I think sometimes when they didn't travel in the right direction, they would flip <laughs> shots and then you have wounds on a different side of the head. <laughs> so it looked like a continuity mistake. And it wasn't. <laughs> and I'll come to you in a moment, but could you talk about the, the relationship with the uh, director of photography? Uh, I am so lucky to work with people that actually I adore to work with. Um, and it's, again, you really are, you know, they really help you. Um, with their knowledge and their um, what they do, but it's usually nowadays is a little bit more I think technical because we don't have the the luxury to kind of uh, scenes are longer these days and people need to look great from every angle and you know apart from maybe possibly raising the camera if it suits someone you you really need to make people look great uh, uh, overall in every situation from back from the front and from the side. Um, and in the old days, I think people were more kind of in control of, let's shoot, you know, shorter takes and more kind of posed. So you do your relationship with uh, a DP is invaluable because you both have a huge task on your hand of trying to make people look great. And when sometimes it's quite hard, 
the conditions can be quite hard. So it's a very, very important collaboration. And someone here, how about you? Do you uh, use any prosthetics uh, combined with the makeup on the reader, or is it just um, makeup uh, products? When, yeah, you, when yeah. you worked on the reader, did you <laughs> use prosthetics? Yes, we did. Yeah, a lot of prosthetics, yeah. Yeah. And in, in what way would you um, apply them? Well, we d so we used, um, nowadays, uh, prosthetics is, techniques have improved hugely since then. They were encapsulated silicon, which is kind of an amazing uh, technique, which is sort of liquid inside and kind of hard like skin on the outside. Um, and we stuck them on, literally, um, on uh, Kate Winslet. Uh, but nowadays, there are some even more advanced techniques in prosthetics. But you do, sometimes to, to change people's uh, silhouettes, you have to go to prosthetics. You can't just, like her jawline is so fabulous. To make her look 85, we had to destroy it somehow. So we made this really terrible <laughs> neck. <laughs> um, we've talked a little bit about technologies and 3D. Um, the switch from film to digital and high definition. Can you talk about the impact of that? And again, it's, it, I guess it's not whether something's easier or harder, but how you adapt to it and what things are easier for you? Um, it's a very good question. And uh, I found that if you're very, very good at, uh, at techniques, um, at applying wigs, facial hair, everything that's uh, prosthetics, everything that's fake, if you're meticulous and very good at it, uh, it, will, it will withstand the new techniques of HD and 3D and all of those kind of things. So things have not become harder in that sense. But we, for example, shot um, Steve Jobs on, seven, on, on 35 mil, I think 16 mil, 35 mil, and digital. digital yeah. And people wore wigs in all three sections. What I found is that uh, 35 mil and 16 mil simply is grainier, and you, you get away with a little bit more, but you don't get away with much in close-up. So it was actually, in the end, it didn't make any difference. You just have to be very meticulous and very good. It's just that sometimes things are very bright in HD, um, and, and, and maybe it's crisper. Um, but you, see, you can't get away with badly applied anything, even on film. So I find that I am um, comfortable with all three in the same way, but you just have to be extra vigilant because the takes are longer, uh, you just have to be more prepared and all your uh, discipline in filmmaking actually has to be enhanced I think now with HD because and, and 3D because takes are longer and um, uh, you know they can do they have more freedom and to just go again and again and again rather than before you knew they would cut and you can run in and do something now you can't count on that you just have to be very good and very vigilant and finally come back full circle um, training the BBC training department doesn't exist anymore. Um, what would you recommend to people these days with regards to training, or is it just get out there and find short films to work on? I would recommend, there are some great training schools like London College of Fashion, and there's some really great courses, and I think they are great. And I think uh, they give you the confidence to go out there and train. But I do um, uh, want to get involved, and I think apprenticeship is what uh, will give you the confidence and the knowledge uh, to become a great filmmaker. Uh, so absolutely go out there and make as many short films as possible because that's where you really train and really... But I think to get some sort of a training and some sort of knowledge from a course um, or any form of training is always beneficial. 
Okay, I think our time is up. Um, I'm now going to take Ivana down to the barn, convince her to create for me the best permanent wig I can possibly have. <laughs> um, can you please join me in thanking Ivana Primova? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was great, thank you.